The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 90, the eternity of God and man's frailty. A prayer of Moses, the man of God, meaning it is the oldest psalm in the Bible. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which springs up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For you have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The day of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants." Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We are in Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 through 51. This is entitled, The Blessings and the Curses, Part 5, starting in verse 45. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand." a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. The word shamad, translated as destroy, will be used three times in today's verses. In total, it is used seven times in this chapter. Every time it is used, it is in relation to Israel. 
But in the very last verse of the chapter, it says that Israel will be offered for sale to their enemies. One cannot be sold off if he has been totally destroyed. And so the word destroy cannot mean utter destruction of the people. We'll see that more fully expressed during the sermon when a promise from the Lord concerning Israel from Leviticus 26 is cited. That is the comparable blessings and curses passage to chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. We have to remember that if Israel was destroyed as a people, then God's promises to the people would be of no value. What would be the point of going through all of redemptive history just to destroy the people that got the world through redemptive history until the time when the Redeemer would come? Where is the glory for God in that? And more, where does the remnant that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 9, citing Isaiah, and Romans chapter 11 then come from? If the church is now Israel, does that mean that only a remnant of the church is saved? That is a logical contradiction. Being a true member of Christ's church means that one is saved. So Paul cannot be referring to the church except as that remnant is a part of it. And if the remnant is from Israel, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 11, then that means that Israel, the nation, still exists. You cannot have a remnant without a whole to have a remnant from. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 32. It's verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. The words of the text verse tell the Gentiles to rejoice with his people. The implication is that the Gentiles are additional to his people. Paul cites that in the New Testament in Romans 15, clearly indicating that the Jews, he refers to them as the circumcision, are his people, and that we, the Gentiles, are now a part of what he is doing. So, we have a remnant from a whole, the remnant is not from the church, and that Gentiles are a part of what God is doing. It is rather clear that there has been and there still is a role for Israel, the people, today. As such, it means that Israel, the people, who are in the land of Israel today, have a part in that role. It cannot be otherwise. Their disobedience to the Lord's word does not negate God's faithfulness to it. Amen. Yesterday, I got an email from somebody talking about our last Bible study. I printed it off, and I'll read it to you during the Bible study but it was a person from the Methodist church. And the guy brought up my view on Methodism. And he said, this, 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 and this. I answered him. It was a long email he sent. I answered him in about eight minutes off the top of my head. And everything he said was completely wrong. Everything. Okay. There you go with that. God's faithfulness is not negated by our unfaithfulness. Methodists believe you can lose your salvation. He's made a category mistake in his thinking. That's one of many, many errors this person made. Rather, God's faithfulness is highlighted. It highlights the magnificence of what God does despite man's unfaithfulness. Remember that when someone tells you that you can lose your salvation. Transgression, violations of the law, faithlessness, and so on will all be dealt with by God. But he will uphold his word to his people through every single one of our failings. Trust in that. And be reassured that if you are in Christ, you are in the sweet spot for all of eternity. 
Great things such as the eternal and infinite grace of God towards his people are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is a sign and a wonder. It's verses 45 and 46. A distinct section of Deuteronomy 28 is seen with the coming of verse 45. As such, some scholars take these sections and divide them into epics of Israel's history. For example, Joseph Benson says the following. Here, some critics have made a division of these prophecies, speaking of all of Deuteronomy 28, and have interpreted the preceding part as relating to the former captivity of the Jews and the calamities which they suffered under the Chaldeans, and the remaining part as referring to their latter captivity and the calamities which they suffered under the Romans. But there is no need, says Bishop Newton, of any such distinction. There is no reason to think any such was intended by the author. Several prophecies of the one part, as well as of the other, have been fulfilled at both periods, but they have all been more amply fulfilling during the latter period and there cannot be a more lively picture than they exhibit of the state of the Jews at present. He wrote that a couple hundred years ago. I agree. It is an oversimplification of what has occurred in Israel's history to say that verses 15 through 44 belong to one epoch of time and the next section, 45 through 68, to another. Further, this would dismiss the obvious division of the people between the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah and what occurred to each of them. Moses repeats and builds upon his previous words, but not necessarily to prophetically refer to separate epics of time. Rather, it is to show that the Lord's judgment will lessen or it will increase according to Israel's return to him or departure from him. The second exile occurred after their rejection of Jesus. As such, the punishments would be great, lengthy, and almost ubiquitous among the people. But the judgments ultimately come from rejecting the Lord Jehovah, regardless as to whether it is prior to his incarnation or not. Moses is continuing in the same main thought right now, even if this new section is clearly defined from the last. Verse 45, moreover, all of these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you. The thought has been expressed twice already in this chapter. In verse 2, it said, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And then in verse 15, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The words are the same as verse 15, except Moses adds in the word pursue. In this, he adds to the intensity of the thought. It is as if the curses are alive, like wild dogs chasing their prey. No matter how fast Israel runs from them, they will catch up. And in their catching up, they will overwhelm them like a flood. In this state of being so overwhelmed, Moses next says, verse 45 continuing, until you are destroyed. This is the third of seven times that Moses uses the word shamad, or destroy, in this chapter. It means just that, to destroy, to bring to naught, to perish, and so on. However, it does not have to be taken in its absolute sense, nor should it be here. The Lord has already said as much in Leviticus 26, using another word, kala, which signifies to bring to an end. Here's what it says there. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to 
utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. Before we go on, the people that are in Israel, the land today, are not right with the Lord. That is irrelevant to the Lord's purposes. He covenanted with them. It doesn't matter if they break their covenant 10,000 times, 10,000 times, the Lord will be faithful to his word. And he has just said there in Leviticus 26, he will never forsake this group of people. It is not up to them to get them into the new covenant. It is up to the Lord, and he will make sure that it happens, and they will call on him, and they will enter the new covenant. And that is, as I just said a few minutes ago, a template of your salvation. Everybody got that? Israel is just a template of what God is doing in you. If you can lose your salvation, it means that God is incompetent, it means that his guarantee is no good, and it means that he doesn't know the future. Because if he did, he wouldn't have saved you in the first place just to reject you again. As such, the word destroyed here simply means the destruction of the people without the annihilation of the nation. And there is a reason for this. Moses tells us in the Song of Moses, here's what he said. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. The Lord's name is at stake in the preservation of Israel. I don't know how people in the church can't get this. They can't get this, and yet it is a fundamental truth of the word of God. He has given his word. To fail to keep it would demonstrate that he was incompetent and not worth following. If he failed, none of his other covenant promises could be considered sure. It is a note of absolute security for the believer. The preservation of Israel confirms the doctrine of eternal salvation. When the Lord speaks forth his guarantee, it is an eternal decree. It is exactly why the Song of Moses ends with a note concerning the Gentiles that we saw in our text verse. The Bible early on teaches us core doctrines concerning faith, hope, security, and so on, if we will simply pay heed to the template set before us. The template is disobedient Israel. How the Lord has faithfully treated them should give each one of us a great deal of assurance when we also fail to measure up. I didn't say if, I said when, because we will all fail to measure up. However, we are still in the curses section of Deuteronomy 28, and so we must continue with evaluating the bad news as well. It will come upon Israel. Before I go on, next week's sermon is brutal. I want you to be prepared for it. If you don't want to hear brutal, don't come. I'm serious about that. What the women are forced to do because of their hunger, go read the verses and think if you want to hear it evaluated. It is horrifying. Verse 45 continues, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Ki lo shamata bekol Yehovah Elohecha. For know you did hear in voice Jehovah your God. To hear means to obey. This is what it all comes down to. The voice of the Lord speaks forth his words, and it is his words that his people are to obey. On the day I typed this sermon, someone emailed me concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We aren't under law, and so how can it hurt for a person to do this? The answer is because the Lord has spoken. In Christ, we are not imputed sin. That's true. But we will still be judged for our actions concerning rewards and loss. Eternal salvation does not mean no consequences. 
Some will come in this life. One divorce leads to another. Finances are ruined. Children are destroyed in heart and in proper direction. People get shot over jealousy and so on. And some consequences follow later. Standing before the Lord, hearing, yes, you willingly disobeyed me in this, and because of it, you will not receive a full reward. It will be a point of true sadness for some people. What could have been, never will be. When we fail to hear the voice of the Lord our God, be it Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, or us now under the New Covenant, we will suffer consequences for our failure. Verse 45 continues, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. The voice of the Lord is that which utters forth what he wills. When God said, let there be light, the light came forth. But light is not an entity with free will. It simply obeys the command. When the Lord says, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife, it is as a decree. This is how it is to be. As surely as the light shines out of the darkness at the word of the Lord, so should we hold to our marriage because of the voice which the Lord has spoken. And this is true with each command set forth in the context of the covenant in which it is spoken. I just highlighted divorce here, but that goes for any command that is found in the Bible. When Paul gives a command, it is a command. We're not going to be imputed sin and lose our salvation if we violate it, but we will be judged in one way or another. It rewards and losses in our own failing life, whatever. For Israel, statutes and judgments were set forth by the Lord, and they were to be heeded accordingly. Failure to hearken meant the promised curses would follow after, overtake, and consume. However, there is the ongoing truth that though Israel was deserving of the curses, Christ took them upon himself in their stead. Jesus, in his humanity, was destroyed. He obeyed the commandments and the statutes set forth, and yet all of the curses clearly came upon him as well. In this, Moses says, verse 46, and they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder. The words more literally say, and they shall be in you to sign and to wonder. The word they is speaking of the curses. What happens to Israel in you in fulfillment of the word and as is displayed in the curses upon them are what will be a sign and a wonder. The oath or sign is something that points to something else. As such, the curses will be a sign of the surety of the word of the Lord. In seeing what happens to Israel, it confirms that the Lord has spoken and performed. Everybody get that? Israel's promise that these things are going to happen to them. We saw it happen in the exile to Babylon, and we've seen it for the past 2,000 years. And the Lord's word is confirmed through disobedient Israel. Everybody see that? It's as evident as the nose on your face if you just look at redemptive history and then go back and read the Old Testament and see what he promised would happen. Hence, the nations are as much without excuse in rejecting the Lord as is Israel. Both are guilty of failing to heed the sign of the curses. The mofet, or wonder, is the thing itself. It is the event that occurs. Together, they are a sign and a wonder. As such, those who are wise will see and understand. From Jeremiah 18, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished. 
and shake his head. Listen, you've read the words of Mark Twain. You've read the words of some of the scholars that wrote about Israel for the past 2,000 years. I mean, the land. (laughs) Right there. Those who pass by will see the wonder that has been brought upon Israel. The wise among them will then understand the sign. The wonder is given and the sign, the surety of the word is confirmed. Verse 46 continues, and on your descendants forever. Ube ad olam, and in your seed until forever. The words here are taken by scholars in one degree or another as referring to the effects upon Israel. In other words, Cambridge says the following, forever. This, though it may imply the final and utter rejection of Israel as a nation, does not preclude the hope of restoration of a part of Israel as individuals or as a remnant remaining in or returning to faith and obedience. Okay, that's Cambridge, and they cite Isaiah, Isaiah, Romans, and Romans. Okay? Likewise, John Lang argues about the scope of the effect upon Israel in contrast to what the scholar Kyle had said. The term forever cannot, with Kyle, be limited to the generation smitten with the curse. It is rather to be limited by thy seed in distinction from the holy seed. Thy seed, seed of evildoers, involving themselves in iniquities of their fathers, upon such the curse rests forever. There is a remnant here also according to the election of grace. The analyses ignore the obvious subject of the verse. And they, the curses, shall be upon you. Who is the object? Israel. They're evaluating it as if he is the subject. And that's incorrect. Israel is the object. As such, it is not referring at all to the people, but to the curses. They are the sign and the wonder. All Israel has to do forever is to look at their history and what has occurred to them, and they can know forever that their own disobedience brought the calamities upon them. Does everybody see the difference there? You evaluate something wrong, and you're going to come to a wrong conclusion. These are some of the finest scholars that you will ever read. John Lang, Kyle, and Cambridge, even though they're a bunch of liberals, they know the intent of passages. And yet, they completely missed what was going on here. This exact thought is expressed by Daniel. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him and he has confirmed his words. There you go. It's the subject and not the object, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Despite the curses being for a sign and wonder on Israel, even forever, Christ was willing to intervene and become his own sign and his own wonder to the people. Isaiah refers to this using the same words. Isaiah chapter 8, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here I am, and the children whom the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. 
Christ took the curses of the law upon himself on behalf of his people, meaning those who believe. They received what he had done to join him in this state. The curse of the law is lifted from them, and they have become signs and wonders in Israel. The author of Hebrews cites Isaiah, demonstrating that this is exactly what is being referred to. Hebrews chapter 2, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. As far as the curses upon Israel being assigned to them, Moses will continue to explain this in the verses ahead. The Lord has given his command, and it is what you are to do. It is that which you cannot see heaven without. He has spoken the word, which is faithful and true. In doing that thing, he is pleased. Have no doubt. Jesus spoke the word, and it is exactly what he meant when he said, this is the work of God. It is that you believe in him whom he sent. With this gospel of peace, be sure that you are shod. Believe in Christ Jesus, that he died for your sins. Believe that he was buried after that. Believe that he rose the third day. Yes, over death, Jesus wins. In your belief, it is an eternal feather in your hat. The law couldn't save anyone. This much is true. But in Christ's fulfillment of it, there is granted life anew. Woohoo! Our second thought today, until you are destroyed. It's verses 47 through 51. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God. Tahat asher lo avadta et Yehovah Elohecha. Under which no, you did serve Yehovah your God. The word tahat or under signifies in place of. One can think of something coming up like a son and replacing his father. Thus, the words here are not based on what was said, but what will be said in the next verse. In essence, the thought is, instead of this, the word serve can also mean worship. The two thoughts are so closely connected that either is used at times when translators will say, well, worship this time, they'll say serve. You just have to guess, are they right or not? The idea is that the people fail to express themselves positively toward the Lord. As such, Moses continues this thought saying, verse 47, continuing, with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything. In joyfulness and in gladness to heart from abundance all. The preposition is be, be, meaning in, and it should be translated as such. It is the same preposition rightly translated repeatedly in the next verse. The Lord is showing a contrast in the two states. The Lord promised the blessings, in receiving them and being grateful for them, and in serving the Lord in joy, in gladness, and the like, Israel would prosper. If one looks at the record of Christ, he did exactly what was expected of Israel here. He served the Lord with joy and with gladness of heart for all of the Lord's blessings. The record of Israel, however, shows that they were not found serving in this way. As such, verse 48, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Instead of serving or worshiping the Lord in joy and gladness, Moses says Israel would serve, it is the same word, his enemies. It is one or the other. Then the choice was solely up to the people, but the response would be at the hand of the Lord. 
As Moses says, verse 48 continues, whom the Lord will send against you. This can come in various ways. In times of prosperity, the people would be well-fed and well-defended. In such a state, because of the Lord's blessing, the enemy could not prevail. The blessing would result in further blessing. However, in a state of prosperity, think of America for the past 50 years, mixed with overindulgence and neglect towards the Lord, the people would be unprepared. Thus, the blessing would result in receiving the curses and the enemy could prevail. Or, in a state of lack because of no rains, high heat, or other adverse weather conditions, the people would lack food, wealth, the capability to defend themselves, and so on. Thus, the curse would lead to further curses and the enemy prevailing. However, such a state of lack could result in the people turning back to the Lord. As such, the curse could lead to renewed blessing. The assumption of this verse, though, is that the Lord is not served and the people have not turned to him. In this, he has withheld the blessing. Therefore, Israel will serve his enemies. Verse 48 going on. In hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. As seen in the examples just noted, the hunger, thirst, nakedness, and need could come directly from the Lord prior to the coming of the enemy, or it could come as a result of the enemy coming against them. It doesn't matter which way it comes, In failing to serve the Lord, the result is lack, want, and need of everything. In such a state, and with the enemy over the people, they would serve man rather than the Lord whom they failed to serve. In this state, verse 48 continues, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The question here is, who is the subject of the action? The New King James Version capitalized the word he indicating they feel it is the Lord. Other translations recognize it as the enemy. They'll, this is from the ISV, they'll set a yoke of iron upon your neck until they have exterminated you. The ISV is clearly wrong as the Hebrew is in the singular, he, but their intent is to indicate that it is the enemy and not to confuse the translation by simply saying he. Other versions like the ESV don't capitalize the pronoun even when it is speaking of the Lord. And so no one has any idea at all what they think it is meant. It's kind of a cheesy way of getting out of things by not capitalizing who they think the Lord is in many of the verses, but that's how they did it. In the Hebrew, the Lord is the nearest antecedent. That makes it probable that it is the Lord. But we do something that Martin Luther taught all of you to do. Let scripture interpret scripture, right? And by doing that, we can confirm that it is most surely the Lord who is being referred to. Jeremiah 28, 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beasts of the field also. What is seen in this verse is the continued contrast of Israel to the Lord. He faithfully served the Lord, and yet... He received the deprivation Israel deserved and the weight of the unyielding yoke of the enemy upon himself, meaning the law. This doesn't mean that the law is from the enemy. Rather, it is from God. But the enemy uses the law against the people because of their inability to perform it. Does everybody understand that? Who was there in the Garden of Eden right at the beginning? The enemy, right? And God had given them something, the two, the man and the woman. What did he give them? a law. 
and the enemy used the word of the Lord in relation to the law, and they sinned. And that's exactly what he does with the law all the time. And that's what he tried to do with Jesus. Remember the three temptations? He just spoke out words from the law, but Jesus was wiser than he, okay? This is what goes on in the world. I'm not saying that the law is bad, and Paul makes the exact same argument in Romans. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is right here in us. The enemy uses the law against the people because of their inability to perform it. This is exactingly referred to by Peter in Acts chapter 15. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What's the yoke? The law. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. In exchange for his work, including bearing the impossible burden of the law upon the people, Jesus offered them a happier state. He said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He's talking about the law, folks, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But for disobedient Israel, while under the law and under its curse, verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. The words of this verse are closely followed by Jeremiah chapter 5. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. At that time, Jeremiah was referring to the Chaldeans of Babylon. The point is that Israel wouldn't just be targeted by her neighbors, but from any country the Lord determined would be the rod of his anger and vengeance. As such, distance was of little matter. Even, verse 49 continues, from the end of the earth. From extremity, the earth. The word eretz, or earth, can speak of the land of Israel or it can extend to mean the earth itself. In this case, it is referring to the furthest parts of the earth, meaning the world. Despite the distance, they will come. Verse 49 continues, as swift as the eagle flies. According to which darts the eagle. It is a new word, meaning to fly swiftly or to dart through the air. It will be seen just four times. We're going to see it in Psalm 18 and Jeremiah 48 and again in Jeremiah 49. The point of these words is that the nation will be unaffected by the distance, obstacles, or difficulty of the journey. They will dart on the land as easily as an eagle does in the sky. As such, they would retain their strength, their order, and their discipline when they arrived at the borders of Israel. The prophets use such terminology when referring to Babylon, such as in Lamentations 4, our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. Despite this theme being repeated concerning Babylon, it is certainly not limited to them. Rather, the eagle was the symbol found on all Roman standards as well. Thus, the symbolic nature of the eagle representing Babylon becomes a literal symbol of Rome, even if the symbolism continues in regard to the Roman armies. That continues to be true for both nations in the next words. Verse 49 continues, a nation whose language you will not understand. 
Go asher lo tishma leshono. Nation which no shall hear tongue. Again, this is in accord with Jeremiah 5 verse 15 said a moment ago. A nation whose language you do not know. Though Aramaic and Hebrew are cognate languages, the variations in them made it beyond the ability of the nation, meaning Israel as a whole, to understand. This is seen, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 18. Though this is referring to the Assyrians and not the Babylonians, it is the same Chaldee, meaning Aramaic, spoken by both countries. Here's what it says there. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shevna and Joah said to the Rav Shachai, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Here, in that verse, it doesn't say Hebrew. Rather, it says Yehudit, meaning the language of Judah. At no time does the Old Testament use the term Hebrew when referring to the language of Israel. Despite that, those trained in diplomacy would have learned the language of Assyria, but the common people would not have understood it. Hence, these men petitioned for the Rav Shachet to speak to them in Aramaic. However, his response, though crude, showed that he wanted all of the people warned, hoping they would rebel and surrender without a fight. And so he continued in Yehudit. But the Rav Shachet said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? It's a little more descriptive in the Hebrew, but you get the point. From there, the Rav Shachet continued warning the people and promising them peace if they would come out and surrender. As this was the case with a cognate language, how much more is it the case with the Roman language, Latin? The structure and the idiomatic expressions would have been completely foreign to Israel. And further, both the Babylonians and the Romans can easily be associated with the next words. Verse 50, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. The description is well reflected in that of the Chaldeans of Babylon as seen in 2 Chronicles. Here's what it says there. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. Jeremiah in the Lamentations speaks in similar words. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. It is evident based on the words of Jesus in Luke 21 that the Romans would be equally hard on the people, something later confirmed by secular historians. Here's what Jesus said in the book of Luke. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. It is not hard to see the comparison to Christ in this. Israel is the disobedient, and Israel deserved the curse. And yet Christ, who perfectly submitted to his Father's will and who served him with joy and gladness, had the terror of the Roman nation brought against him. The penalties of the curse came upon him in place of the people. 
the nation of fierce countenance that did not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young treated the one more innocent than any other with the cruelest of all tortures. As for disobedient Israel, Moses continues telling them what they deserve because of their failure to serve the Lord. Verse 51, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land. This is still speaking of the nation of fierce countenance. As such, and despite most translations repeatedly saying they in this verse, the Hebrew is in the singular. He or it shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land. Concerning these things, verse 4 and verse 18 made a contrast between them. Here's what it said in verse 28:4: Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. And then in 28:18, Cursed shall be the fruit of your body, and the produce of your land, and the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Now, it states that whether blessed in increase or not, Whatever they have, be it much or little, will simply be taken from them and consumed. The one with much will see much taken from him. The one with little will see what little he has taken from him. All of the efforts of the land will be taken away by the invading forces. Verse 51 going on, until you are destroyed. It is the third time in our few verses today where the word shamad or destroyed is used. Israel's efforts will be brought to nothing. And in turn, Israel will be brought to nothing. The words speak of futility of effort leading to futility of life. This futility will include all of the things that are accounted as necessary for normal life. In other words, the next two clauses are set in parallel to the first clause. The produce of your land is explained by the words, verse 51 continues, they shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil. The grain, new wine, and oil are the commodities of the soil. They are used for consumption, storing up, and for selling. But none of this will come to pass for disobedient Israel. Instead, all of the efforts of their labors will be taken from them by the nation of fierce countenance, leaving them nothing except empty hands and empty stomachs. Next, Moses explains the meaning of the words, the increase meaning the fruit of your livestock saying. Verse 51 continues, or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks. Two words here are seen for the very last time in scripture, sheger or increase and ashtorot or offspring. Both words are used in the same four verses in Deuteronomy and they are now retired from scripture together. What issued from the cattle and from the flock together make up the fruit of the livestock. Again, like the previous clause, that which Israel worked for will be taken from them and it will be consumed, leaving nothing left for them to eat. It elicits the thought of complete futility and a state of absolute destitution. This will be wrought upon them by this nation. Verse 51 finishes with, until they have destroyed you. It is a poor translation. Three times in our verses, the word shamad has been used. Now it uses the word abad. It signifies to perish. Thus, the words should say until he, it is singular, has caused you to perish. The idea is that Israel will be destroyed until they are caused to perish. Everything will be against them. Every burden will be upon them. And everything will be taken from them until they are simply withering away from the strain of it all. One can see the contrast between Israel and Christ in this. Both suffered under the law, 
one for its own sins. Everything was taken from them, and they were destroyed until they perished. Those that remained were exiled from their home. Only because of the Lord's faithfulness to them, because of the covenant, were they not utterly destroyed. Their time of exile is over, even if their time of destruction is not. Their future is set only because the Lord has preserved them to bring them into the new covenant. Christ also suffered under the law, but it was for the sins of his people. Everything was taken from him, and he was destroyed until he perished. He was exiled from the land of the living, but he was restored because of his faithfulness to the covenant. Because of him, Israel's future is set. It is his faithfulness under the old covenant that will, in fact, bring them into the new covenant. With each step of both the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy, the work of Christ is highlighted. He is the basis of any true blessing, and he is the bearer of and remover of the curses. We can see that where they failed, he was able to pick up and continue forward. It is the lesson of the law. What man is incapable of doing, Christ was willing to do in our place. In him is the victory, and in him is restoration and renewal for the human soul. For any who will come to him now, simply trusting by faith that he is capable of saving us from our sins, such will be saved. And for Israel as a nation, they too will someday be saved and they will receive the wonderful covenant promises made to them under the old covenant, but which speak of their favor under the new covenant. Jesus Christ is the hope set forth for mankind, and he is the covenant-keeping Lord who will fulfill every single promise he has made. Nothing will fail because he is our God who cannot fail. Thank God for Jesus Christ. What a terrifying lesson that we have to learn through the destruction of this group of people. They can't say that it was undeserved. None of us can say that. They can't say it. It was fully deserved because they agreed to the terms of the covenant. And he did more for them than they could ever possibly have imagined. He sent them prophets. He sent them wise men. He sent them good kings. He gave them his word. And his word was always there with them. Oh, we found this book of the Lord here in the temple. Here it is. Let's take a read. And what does the guy do? He reads it and he hears it. He says, my God, are we in trouble? He tears his garments and he says, what's going to happen to us? And he starts making reforms throughout the land. He gave them every possible opportunity to know who he is and what he expects. And also to know that when Jesus came, he is the fulfillment of everything that is being prophesied. And they failed to heed. Now, I'm not trying to beat up Israel, but the fact is that all they are is a template of us. And he has given us his word. How many people sit and listen to the Bible studies? If you don't come, that's fine. How many of you actually sit and listen to them on Thursday after they're given? How many people read the word every morning? How many people read the word every night? If I start asking you questions like I do at the end of every sermon, how many of you will answer? See, I'm just making a comparison to Israel in us. How willing are we to be obedient to the Lord our God? That's what's being presented to us right here. This is a tutor to lead us to Christ, and it's also to show us our own failings. But despite your failings for not knowing this week's question, it's okay because the Lord has already forgiven you, and he will keep his side of the covenant with you. I bet you somebody will get it today, though. I really do. So I, I do think so. It's a very easy question, and it'll take a second. You'll say, I know it. But anyway, I'm just trying to give you the point. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. It's just that this is us. If I was sitting out there and you asked me the question, I wouldn't be able to answer it because your brain freezes. You're the one that's under the pressure, not me. 
It makes it sound like, oh, Charlie knows all this stuff. Listen, I had to sit down this morning because I forgot again and think of a question. And I had to go find something, right? I'm no smarter than you. I would not get it. Okay. Here's the point of everything we're talking about. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus took the punishment that Israel deserves upon himself, and that is inclusive of you and me because he died for our sins as well. Okay? Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again. This is the gospel message. That's it. It's that simple. Believe that message, and the Bible says you will be saved. And if you believe it, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee for the purchase, the redemption of the purchased possession. It is a guarantee. I don't know how somebody can read those words and say, oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. I I just don't understand it. But people don't think clearly on these issues. Look to Israel and you will have your theology pretty well sorted out. It's that simple. Go through the books of Moses like you guys here are doing and you out on YouTube right now. You will understand the New Testament a lot better. So please believe that gospel message and be saved. And then be sure to learn the word and be obedient. Don't be like disobedient Israel. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 62. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Coming soon to a millennium near you. Good stuff. Next week is Deuteronomy 28, 52 through 61. Another dose as if vaccines from nurses in order to help you get your Deuteronomy 28 fix. It's entitled The Blessings and the Curses. Part 6. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 82nd Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, it's good that I read the 90th Psalm today because it's kind of in tune with the question I'm going to ask you, and I didn't plan it, just it's kind of in tune with it. (laughs) Moses says that it's 70 years that a person can expect of life and 80 if he's blessed. That's basically what he said. Remember that from the Psalm? Okay, this is not the question, but I'm setting it up for the question. How old was Moses when he died? 125. No. No. 120. 120. He was 120. Now, here is the, you said 124, right? Okay. All right. I I thought maybe she patted you on the back and so I thought maybe you had gotten it. I misunderstood. Okay. You got it. But that's not the question. Here's the question set up on that. Okay. Well, I told you this isn't the question. So, okay. Moses died at 120 years old. Okay. How old was Jehoiada the priest when he died? What? No. 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 I can't believe nobody got this. After Moses, who died at 120, Jehoiada the priest, many years later, was rewarded with the longest life after Moses. 130 years. I can't believe you didn't get that. I gave you everything but the kitchen sink. Okay. Jehoiada... Everybody after Moses is recorded with these short little lives, like some of them get killed in battle and they're 15 or something, whatever. That guy lived a long, 
healthy life. He was 130. Don't ever forget that again. Okay, he's the one guy after Moses, 130 years old. I'm sorry. I thought that was so easy that you were going to get it. I'm sorry. I apologize for belittling you with my assumption. What? She said a lady just died at 120, so she had a good long life as well. Yeah. Did she say what the secret of her, her long life was? I'm going to tell you, almost always, if you read the newspaper, if you read the newspaper and somebody hits their 100th year, they always do a little story on them. Marianne is 100 years old today, and they ask her, Marianne, what's the source of your, your longevity? And she'll say something like, I drink three glasses of wine a day, or I have a pound of bacon every day. It's crazy. Uh, uh, almost all of them. Very few of them say, well, I really take care of my health and I eat good stuff. That's very rare. Okay, let's get into the poem and we'll be done. I'm sorry, I thought you'd all get that. Okay. Okay, this is entitled The Blessings and the Curses, Part 5. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed. To this fate you will be handed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he to you commanded. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder too and on your descendants forever. Such he shall do to you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God and praises you did not sing with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Such catastrophe he will bring. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. Yes, he will have brung a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed, so he will do. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the many blessings of this life. Thank you for this lesson that you have given us in the pages of Scripture to show us what we need to do and how we can avoid all the catastrophes of our own lives by calling on you, by being observant to you, and following in your precepts all the days of our lives. But Lord, we can't do those things unless we know what you expect, and we can't know what you expect unless we study your word, we read your word, we think on your word, we meditate upon it, and let it fill our lives letting it dwell in us richly. May it be so to your glory, and may we do it for all the days of our very short lives. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached. We thank you for the opportunity to share in the communion. And Lord, we thank you for the people that brought such tasty delights today to fill our mouths with uh, joy as we had lunch a while ago. Thank you for all of these things, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody know how old Jehoiada was when he died? 130. 130. Wow, I got a smart congregation here. Good stuff. All right.